So good morning, everyone. It's so fantastic to be with you. Um, for, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name's David. Uh, I'm a member here at Battle Baptist, but for uh, the last, well, for, well, going on four years now, I spent a lot of time up uh, north in Durham. Uh, I'm now studying for a master's in biblical studies. So it's so great to be back with you again, back home for Christmas after my 10th term at university. It's a long time. Um, I, I hope you all had a lovely Christmas. Uh, and that you are really able to take time out and relax and enjoy um, this time of year. And I hope you're able to get a sense again uh, of the gravity of the Christmas message, that the long-sought-after Emmanuel, which which just means God is with us, it's Hebrew for God is with us, that the long-sought-after Emmanuel became human. And even in our darkest moments, the Christmas message is of God's radical gift to us, the gift of himself, the gift of hope. So I pray that we could enjoy something of the festivities this year, because it's something to celebrate. Um, But as Rob said at the beginning, the new year dawns, and we are aware that time moves forward. And so today we move on in our Christmas story to the next major stage in Jesus' life, uh, specifically in Matthew's account. Um, So in a a little bit, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. But just before that, let's let's spend a moment... um, just on the story in Matthew's gospel so far. If you've ever read Matthew, uh, then you probably start off very bored. Um, Because the first great chunk in Matthew is a long family tree of sometimes recognizable names. Most of us have probably skipped over it. But this family tree is there for a reason. Uh, In the first section, the first 14 generations, we move from Abraham, to whom God gave a great promise, um, to King David, one of the most exalted characters in Israel's history. In David's reign, um, Israel reached a high point of unity and prosperity of God being with them. Remember the Emmanuel promise, God being with them. But 14 generations later, David's descendants have messed up. The land is occupied. Some of its people are scattered and no longer together. A lot of them sent off to the east. Their entire lives, their national security, their future... And their very relationship with God is thrown into utter chaos. It feels like God is no longer with them and that the promise to Abraham is going to be left unfulfilled. Um, When Rob started with Lamentations chapter 2, at first I was a bit traumatized because I've got to write an essay, a 5,000-word essay on Lamentations. So it's just bringing it all back to me. Um, But Lamentations is very appropriate because in Lamentations there are a series of five poems that are trying to deal with a great calamity that's happened. Um, we think, although it sort of defies pinpointing, we think it's about this, this, great, um, this great event, this great calamity that happened at the end of those 14 generations, the exile. Um, Israel, is, the, the temple of God was in their midst. That's, that's the seat of God's presence. That's them saying, the Lord is with them. And the temple was destroyed. Everything is thrown into chaos. Another 14 generations pass, and some Israelites are still scattered, a family divided, and Israel is still occupied. Things are not the same as under God's king, King David. But then Jesus is born at the end of these 14 generations of exile. So Matthew sparks hope that in Jesus we find the long-awaited Messiah, the Emmanuel of, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew sparks the hope that Jesus will finally knit God and his people back together, bring peace and prosperity and salvation. 
So Matthew starts his gospel on a high note, promising so much. No wonder we read these passages at Christmas while we celebrate and we sing. But it's hard to escape the fact that today's passage comes like a slap in the face. We go from joy uh, to horror as something goes entirely unexpectedly and badly wrong. Because as we hear each year in in the nativity, Israel already had a king. King Herod. Um, He wasn't an Israelite. He wormed his way into power, and he shared that power with the Roman Empire. So jeopardy looms over our Christmas celebrations. And so let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When they, the wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, So the high expectation that we started off with culminates in another story of exile. We expected the end of oppression, the end of exile, Jesus ruling. But Jesus has to flee to Egypt with his family. He's not a conquering hero, but he becomes a refugee. What's going on? Has he failed already? Matthew is interested in the long history of the world, particularly Israel, the history set up by scripture. If you've seen the popular cartoon, Prince of Egypt, which I love, uh, or you've read the Bible, uh, then you'll know that one of the earliest parts of God's and Israel's story is when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Their ancestors went down into Egypt, full of hope, but ended up in dire oppression. Egypt and the eventual escape from Egypt is a significant moment in their history. Uh, Lost my place. Uh, so just like the Israelites who dwelt in Egypt with threat looming over them we see Jesus' Jesus's family fleeing to Egypt to escape Herod who in a bit we uh, didn't read today goes around killing infants in order to uh, solidify his throne and just to strengthen the link between Jesus' story and Israel's story Herod is, the, uh, Herod is like Pharaoh who murdered Jewish babies to end a threat to Pharaoh's throne Jesus and Israel are intertwined. That's what's going on in this story. And that's exactly how Matthew reads it, because in verse 15, we read, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's a quote from Hosea, which is a book in the Old Testament. So Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which reads, um, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is not reading Hosea like a prediction about Jesus. In Hosea, the son is clearly the whole of Israel, God's people. So this episode in Jesus' life means Jesus is identified with Israel. The point is Jesus is living out their history. He is their representative, and he is living among them. Richard Hayes summarizes it like this. Jesus becomes the one in whom the fate of Israel is embodied and enacted. The story of Israel and the story of Jesus become one and the same. 
Jesus is king, but Jesus is not lording it over them. He becomes one of them. He is the God with them in every situation, up close and personal. Jesus, in this story and in his, ty- in his, in his entire life, he offers himself, he gifts himself. He sacrifices himself to them so that in Jesus, God draws near to every painful moment in Israel's history. So the key point is that our Christmas story, with all its festivities and hope, is interrupted with Jesus fleeing to Egypt. Um, Through this, Jesus is actually taking up the place of Israel, sacrificing himself in order to bind himself up with their history and their future. When we think of sacrifice as Christians, I reckon we all think of the cross, right? That's the epitome of giving it all, of holding nothing back. The cross and the resurrection change the face of the world forever. And so the Easter story is at the very core of Christianity. But today we've also found Jesus sacrificing, of giving himself up for Israel. So I think what we see is Jesus' whole life is sacrifice. And that's what I want to talk about today. Jesus' whole life is sacrifice. Uh, As Christians, and I don't think this is controversial, so I'm going to skip over this almost. Um, As Christians, we're called to live out Jesus' teaching, Jesus' example. As Jesus identified himself with Israel, we identify ourselves with him. In John chapter 15, um, he says that we are are the branches, he is the vine. This is an organic image of, of us drawing our life force from him taking his example, living it out, of him defining us. So we've seen today that his whole life is sacrifice. What do we do with that? The first thing, again, I almost want to pass over, is that this means uh, there's a call for each of us to live sacrificially, always. Yep, it's another one of those sermons uh, that calls Christians to action, to offer themselves up and to do things they really don't want to do. To sacrifice. I'm going to be invited back again. But what I really want to discuss today is our notion of sacrifice. What the word makes us think about and how we treat it and ourselves. So I'm going to shut up for a minute and we're going to watch a video clip. Horrible histories. I grew up on it. Uh, I just love it. So hopefully the clip will work. going to take a moment as we get to the right place. I'm wherefore. Oh, whatever. Yes? Ah. Ah. <laughs> Give us your money. Give me your money or I'll whack you with me cudgel. You'll hit me with your cudgel. What sort of a threat is that? I'm whipping myself with a steel-tipped whip here. Ah, now look what you made me do. Supposed to be abstaining from talking. I'm going to have to whip myself again now as punishment. Ah! Why aren't you supposed to talk? Because I'm a flagellant. I'm atoning for my sins by wandering from town to town, silently whipping myself. I've opened me gob again now. Ha! Well, whipping or no whipping, give us your money or I'll... I'll... Yes. Ha! I'll eat you with this cudgel, and I'll cut your feet off and gouge your eyes out. Well, that might be quite helpful, actually. What? Well, like I say, I'm a flagellant. 
I'm trying to suffer as Jesus did so that God will save my soul. I'm thinking the more suffering, the better. So do your worst. Oh! Well, if you won't give me your money, I'll just have to help myself. Oh! Oh, that's disgusting! Yeah, I know. As well as the whipping, we flagellants are also forbidden to wash, shave or change our clothes. Oh! You're not right in the head. Here, hang on. You haven't even got any money. Nah. That's the other thing about us flagellants. We believe money to be the root of all evil. Oh! So I'm penniless. Oh, what's the point? I'm an hopeless thief. Well, why don't you give it up? Aye, come on the road with me. It'll mean you'll go to heaven. You're on? Oh, I am a sinner. Oh, how long do we have to do this for? Well, Jesus lived for 33 and a third years, so we'll keep this up for 33 and a third days. 33 and a third days? I'm talking in front. Oh, ow, ow, ow. Ow, ow, ow. Brilliant. I love horrible histories. It's a silly kit, a clip. But that's what people really used to do. And in fact, um, there are still groups who inflict um, wounds upon themselves today. They do this to draw near Jesus, to draw upon Jesus' example. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was brutal. And if we only look to that, about how he gave himself up to death on a cross, perhaps our idea of sacrifice does get warped. Although it's an extreme example, a silly sketch, I wonder whether this is the direction uh, we tend towards when we think of sacrifice. I think there are two instinctive reactions to hearing the call to sacrifice. One is to run away because the call is too great and it's, it's just too much of a requirement on us. The second, though, is probably to accept the call disheartened. We feel the massive weight on our lives. It, it might not always be there, but if you're like me, then after a sermon that points out how we're supposed to be sacrificial, I feel the weight of that message. But this throws into question what we imagine by the word sacrifice. Does it conjure up bleak and miserable images? Do we end up with an impression of sacrifice like the flagellants? Is sacrifice only destructive? Perhaps self-destructive? I think this destructive impression of sacrifice of a Christian life can come out in various ways. I want to suggest a few. Um, First, I think that sacrifice can often be driven by a sense of guilt or shame. It allows us to dwell in that guilt and shame. Perhaps it's guilt that we're not doing enough. Perhaps it's shame of who we've been and what we've done. And we feel that sacrifice is feeling negative in some way, and so we sit on these uh, emotions, these feelings, because we're not allowed to feel good about ourselves. Maybe sacrifice looks destructive for us because in the name of sacrifice, we throw our health and our mental health to the wind. Perhaps we accept burnout, mental breakdown, not spending enough time to cook healthy food for ourselves. Another example might be feeling that we're not worthy or don't deserve to spend any money on ourselves. Any money on ourselves. Any, use it at all for any enjoyment. Or perhaps we remain in immensely damaging relationships in the name of sacrifice. I heard a story recently of a pastor in the States who told women who were in abusive relationships to stay in those relationships, to stay in those marriages in the name of sacrifice. 
all in the hope that their husbands would change. In other words, do we allow ourselves to fall into damaging habits, emotions of guilt and shame, destructive situations, all because Jesus' example was to give himself over to extreme pain? This is the thing. I'm worried that Christians um, look, sometimes at least, look upon the goodness in their lives and how much time they spend being happy and having fun and then measure that against a destructive uh, idea of sacrifice. Once they've done that, they think they've not been unhappy enough, tired enough, sacrificial enough recently. Do we think that we're never doing enough? Another way of putting it is, uh, do we sometimes end up feeling like bipolar Christians, flitting between moments of joy and moments of sacrifice, perhaps a little bit like today, going from the Christmas story to our passage about exile? When we hear Jesus say in John 10.10 that he has come to bring us life, abundant life, do we find that incompatible with the calling to be living sacrifices that we find in Romans 12.1? When our idea of sacrifice is bleak, that we don't want to live, uh, denying ourselves by not allowing ourselves any enjoyment, feeling bad to feel Christ-like, when that's our idea of sacrifice, then we end up looking like the flagellants who hurt themselves because they thought themselves unworthy. We end up looking more like the flagellants than Jesus. On this kind of topic, one of my friends reminded me of a famous quote by C.S. Lewis that I think is relevant. He said something like, humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And I think this is true for sacrifice. Not least because sacrifice and humility are closely related. Sacrifice does not look like thinking less of ourselves. Thinking that we're not worthy. That we shouldn't ever be happy. Or that we should be at our wit's end. Otherwise we're not working hard enough. That might sound like extremes, but I wonder, is this the direction we tend towards when we think of sacrifice, when we think about living sacrificially? I'm not saying sacrifice is cosy, but I am saying we need to live out that calling well. That's the point. We're living out that calling well. We started today by looking at how Jesus' whole life was sacrifice. If we truly think about what that means, I don't think we end up with a negative, bleak definition of sacrifice. I think we end up with something like sacrifice is life. Because the thing we need to realize is that Jesus drew near to Israel, lived out the history and humbled himself in order to bring Israel life and to live life with Israel. There's a purpose in mind. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The heart of sacrifice is love. It's to bring about the best in the other person, to fight for them. God did what he did to bring us into relationship. So sacrifice does not mean feeling worse about ourselves or hurting ourselves. Um, It means lifting others up. That's the point. The measure of sacrifice is not how much it hurts us, it's not how much it breaks us, and it's not how much it ruins our day or jeopardizes our future. The measure of sacrifice is love. Jesus' life was not a miserable existence. He spent time with his disciples. Part of that life was the cross, yes, a moment of extreme and severe pain, and there were plenty of other situations when he had to give himself over. But he spent his life with his disciples, made himself vulnerable to them, 
enjoying their company, partying, teaching them, um, tearing his hair out as he had to explain things over and over again. Sacrifice is life. It's the Christian way of life, but it's also where we find God-shaped life. As I was thinking uh, about this in my own situations, I realized that sacrifice goes wrong in my head when I get locked in introspection, when I get locked in looking in in on myself. So I focus on my guilt, maybe my shame, on how I'm responding to God, on the quality of my sermon, perhaps, on the thoughts about the future. When I get locked in on my uh, inner thoughts, then I allow myself to pursue living sacrificially in a destructive way. Anxiety creeps in, sometimes problems with self-worth. But when it's done like this, living sacrificially for God's aims and for other people ends up looking more like a shadow life than God's abundant life. Whereas, when I stop getting locked in introspection and when I uh, look at uh, outwards to the people God calls us to love, to you, to my family, then I realize that without even striving after it, I've found good life. Living sacrificially will absolutely mean doing things we don't automatically want to do. It will expend our time, our energy, and our money. We may ache, we may, we may even end up wanting to cry. But it's not about that. It's not about feeling bad about ourselves. It's about others. We shouldn't be locked in introspection. And when we're, when we're a community fighting hard for one another, wells of living water and of life spring up. I found this example really helpful. Think about a parent. A parent sacrifices for their child. That means so much hard work. Um, It means doing less for themselves and giving more up for their child. Uh, I'm sure parents in the room will be able to vouch for this and tell us uh, loads of stories about how this is true. But the point is it's for the child. It's bringing a smile to their face. There's love there. There's life there. There's fighting for them. It's a good thing. Parents feel fulfilled and they enjoy a wonderful relationship with their child. In sacrifice, we find life. So, I've assumed in this sermon that we are called to a hard life. We're called to fight for one another. We can't get around the fact that Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. We're called to serve one another. In in Galatians, we're called to be slaves to one another. It's not comfortable imagery. It's not meant to be comfortable imagery. But, our lives aren't supposed to be total miseries. (laughs) Seems simple to say. Sacrifice mustn't become anything like punishing ourselves or seeking out situations that overwhelm us. Sacrifice should be about pursuing love. That's the core of it. That's the point of it. It's about pursuing love. So, as I end, you'll be pleased to hear. A relevant response may be to think about how this means opening up ourselves and making ourselves vulnerable to one another. I'm sure in a church and in the world living out this community life, this sacrificial living, is at times grinding. Perhaps we can simply respond today by spending time with human beings, making friendships which may hurt us. But it's in this community that we find thriving life. We find fun, we find family, we find love, we find support. We treat each other as having worth because God thinks us worthy. Sacrifice is not death and destruction. That's not what it's about. Sacrifice is life. 
It's not warm and cozy and selfish, but, it's, but sacrifice is life. It's the place we go to to find some of God's abundant life. So, as we go forward in the new year, hearing God's uh, call to us to live God-shaped lives, remember our whole lives are supposed to be sacrificial. It's a hard calling. We're going to hear it every week. I'm sorry that's what church sermons are like. But it's supposed to be a calling that is life-affirming.